My name is Peter Coleman. I'm a professor of psychology and education um, at Columbia University, and uh, I'm one of the co-directors of the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity, which sponsors this uh, speaker series, which is called Peace and Conflict Ideas from the Leading Edge at Columbia University. Um, and we like to profile people who work either at the university or with uh, others at the university and do interesting and innovative and important work uh, regarding, to, regarding peace and conflict. And today I have the pleasure of um, welcoming uh, a colleague and a, and a longtime friend, Larry Leibovich. Larry is uh, trained originally as an astrophysicist um, and he has hold, held m multiple positions throughout his life, but currently he's at the City University of New York in Queens. He's a professor of physics and uh, teaches in psychology. Uh, and he's also affiliated with our consortium at Columbia University and has been involved in some of the work we've done really for years. Uh, welcome, Larry. Uh, thank you. It's nice to be here. So I brought Larry because he is one of my favorite people who can talk about applied mathematics and peace in the same sentence. And usually <laughs> it's a confusing uh, connection between the two. But Larry works, as I said, as a physicist and thinks like that and I've been working for uh, probably seven or eight years now with a team of complexity science who are trying to understand difficult conflicts by applying insights and ideas from mathematics to the study of them. And so several years ago, Larry and I uh, and a group of other folks um, put to got a grant and put together a team to study difficult long-term intractable conflicts. And Larry joined the team at that point, and, and he really has been um, a, a, an invaluable asset to this work and that he brings, as I said, ideas, methods, new methods and models to study these kinds of things. So Larry, um, first of all, did I leave anything out important about your background that you want to share? No, that's fine. Uh, you are from the Bronx. Right. I should sound like I'm from the Bronx. <laughs> right. But you live in Queens now, so you might have a hybrid dialect. No, the Queens hasn't sunk in enough to be hybrid yet. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, Larry was a director of a complexity center institute at Florida Atlantic University for years uh, before he came up here. Um, then he was dean of natural sciences and mathematics at Queens for a bit. Um, and now he's here working with us and, uh, and a professor at Queens. Um, so first of all, I guess let me just ask you about um, mathematics, applied mathematics, and how possibly is that relevant to sort of peace and conflict? Right. Well, it's, it seems like mathematics is pretty far away from people and dealing with conflicts. But as you know, you know, there are kind of at least two ways that the mathematics is relevant. One, one way is that it gives us new ideas in terms of approaching conflicts. So as you know, especially in dealing with issues in intractable conflicts, you know, it's up to forming new ideas and new paradigms to look at things. And one of the things that I know you've been involved with for a long time is thinking of conflicts in terms of attractors, and uh, which means that you know people keep trying to do different things but wind up in the same place. Right. And there are mathematical systems that do that. So one can take what I would say is a metaphorical approach and learn from how the mathematics d does things to give you possible alternative ways or new ways of thinking of how people might be doing things. 
So that's one of the ways. That so, so ideas like uh, ti a tipping point is an idea that comes from systems change, right? Or emergence is another when we see flocks of birds sort of take form in the air, and as a group they emerge into some whole, those kinds of things. They're, they're, these are ideas that have really emerged out of, out of mathematics. Right, right. Yeah. right. So um, uh, another idea is that sometimes there are very sudden changes in a system, and you know, asking what are the things that presage those changes or whether they happen all by themselves is other concepts that come out of mathematics. Sure. So system, give me a sense of what, what, is, what are we talking about when we talk about systems? Uh, so in terms of peace and conflict, systems would be people, but it would also be the environment. It would be their past, their culture, how they've interacted before. So there are things both in space and time and culture and the emotions that people bring as well as maybe sometimes a degree of rationality. Uh, and so the system has a lot of these different moving pieces. And how do we need to think of a system like that and what, what are the possible properties of those systems? So sometimes the mathematics from other systems can give us things to look for uh, in a complex system like that. Great. So you said two ways. So one is using the metaphors and ideas from mathematics, and, and what are the others? Right, the second way. So one, two, it's very mathematical. <laughs> right. uh, uh, this, the second way, and, and this is partly what I do, is to make uh, rigorous mathematical models of how people behave. So we can translate assumptions that we have on how we think people are interacting in equations. And once we have the equations, we can use standard methods of mathematics to see the consequences of those equations. And sometimes it's, although some people won't believe this, but sometimes it's easier to deal with the mathematics than to think things through in words. Mm. So once we have the assumptions, we can see the logically necessary consequences of those assumptions. And so we build mathematical models of how we think people behave, or one of the projects we're working on with my collaborators in Florida is looking at interactions between therapists and their clients. Mm. And we put together the equations, and then we look at real interactions between therapists and clients and see if that really happens or not. So I know one of the, um, one of the theories that you've worked with to mathematize uh, was a, is a theory that was um, actually developed mostly here at Columbia by a uh, sort of a seminal thinker named Morton Deutsch, who was a emeritus professor at Columbia. He was one of the early founders of the field of conflict studies, conflict resolution. Uh, and he, uh, coming out of World War II, had a, a simple theory, which is that, you know, conflicts can move in a more constructive or destructive direction, and those that move in a more, you know, useful or constructive direction are when people see their goals aligned, when they s approach it in a more cooperative way, where they have a mutual problem together and they try to resolve it. Um, versus conflicts that are much more purely competitive, win-lose, and that those tend to become more escalated, intense, and can sort of get out of control and become more destructive. And so Mort developed this theory, worked for decades on it, published quite extensively, and it was a very, very influential theory. But I know about five, six, seven years ago, you um, attempted to mathematize it, to translate it into an equation, and, and you did that and then worked with some simulations. So just tell us a little bit about what, what like, what do you learn? What, like, what's the point of taking something that's been developed and studied empirically and then, and then making it more precise mathematically? Right, so sometimes we thought Morton's ideas were really interesting, and we could make them quantitative to a degree and then see where they, where they uh, led. Um, 
one of the things we're interested in, we can see in some of the mathematical models that if we have two people each doing the opposite of what they're doing, and sometimes it looks like they're getting along for a long while, and then suddenly they split off and behave very differently. And if you just saw this uh, in real life outside the mathematics, you would think something bad happened at that point where they split off. And we can see that under certain circumstances, a very nonlinear system will behave like this. So this tells us that sometimes when we see things going along quietly uh, and some, something happens, maybe there wasn't an exogenous influence. Maybe something was built into the system um, that wasn't obvious but was really there uh, but sort of deeper so you wouldn't see it. But you can see it sometimes if you carry through the mathematics. So um, just to translate that, so you have a, 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 you know, two roommates, and they maybe meet other new roommates at Columbia. They meet, they live together for a while, and, and they seem to get along fine or fairly well. And then at some point, there's a major explosion between them, right? And so what your research would suggest or what the model would suggest is that that isn't necessarily because of something that happened at, at any moment. But it might have been something that actually the, the one of the or both of the members, the roommates, came in with uh, in the first place, right? Right. So that's that's a good example. So, uh, and I'll untranslate that in, in a moment. <laughs> but um, it it means that sometimes these equations have what's called sensitivity to initial conditions, or the butterfly effect, which means that uh, after a certain time, some small thing is going to grow. Uh, to be of tremendous importance. So that would say that maybe there was some aspect of the roommate relationship at the beginning that didn't seem so big, but at the end is going to really cause them to split, up, split apart. So, so the, the butterfly effect is that if a butterfly beats its wings in Thailand, then a week later, that will change little things in the atmosphere, which will build to a thunderstorm here in New York City. Right, got it. Very good. Okay. So, um, so... So I know you've also talked about um, one of the values of, of taking theory, uh, social theory, ideas and social theory about power dynamics or conflict dynamics and translating them is that it, it sort of forces you to understand what exactly you're talking about, right? It forces you to be more precise in your thinking. So did, how did that happen with Deutsch's theory? So he's talking about cooperation and competition and the difference of those effects in conflict. How, does, how did you get to a more precise place? Yeah, so, so we had to uh, operationalize what, what that meant. So we had to write down uh, the jargon phrases and influence function. If one person feels one way, how will the other person feel? And we had to make that quantitative. And we could do that with a function that has a certain mathematical form. But we had to decide what would be a reasonable function, what might mimic uh, what you might see in, um, you know, outs in the real world outside of mathematics. So it, it, um, it forces you, one of the advantages in mathematics is that it forces you to be really clear about what you're stating. If you have to write it down in an equation, you can't fudge, you can't use words that you don't completely understand or whose effects you don't understand. So writing down the equation, trying to take uh, Martin Deutsch's ideas and making it more, more concrete to see where they lead, you know, is a very interesting exercise for us. I should also say it's also wonderful to have a great starting point. Sure. So in terms of what Morton did, in terms of what you did, you know, it's been really fascinating for me to see 
what happens with real-world practitioners working with real conflicts, because in, in the same way that once we have something, we can see its consequences, but we have to have something that's real. So for me, it's also exciting to work with people like you and other people to get a better sense of what we want to assume the assumptions are. Sure. Uh, Larry and I worked as, as part of this team, and the team had uh, Andrea Bartley, who is an anthropologist and a peacemaker in situations of international deadly conflict, and we had complexity scientists, Andrea Novak and Robin Balaker, social psychologist, you know, peace psychologist. We had a variety of different people involved in this group, and it was always a, a lively group to have conversations with, and Larry would often bring us, try to bring us back to the sort of simplest aspects, to the equations, to the sort of you know, the, the most basic dynamics. And that was, I think, a, a good check, I think, for the work. Um, so um, one of the projects I know that you've been working on in the last um, uh, maybe two or three years now is working with what you call small world networks. Can you explain what those are and what you're studying? Sure. So this is like something like the six degrees of separation business, that you know someone who knows someone who knows someone and within a relatively small number of connections, we're connected from here to everybody else. And we're trying to understand if people have different behaviors on the network, how will the whole network behave? And probably the most interesting thing we've been finding is you would think if everybody does the same thing and they all try to be helpful, that the network, the group, would be the most effective working together. In fact, we're, we're seeing that's not the case that it's actually good for people to have different and contrasting behaviors in what they're doing, and somehow that makes the whole network work more together effectively. Mm -hmm. So we're, 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 we have these little toy worlds where we could change behaviors or, or change the ratios of people uh, who are trying to do the same as other people are trying to do differently, and then sort of let them play out and see what happens. So, um, so again, so you have a network of people that say your social network or a political network you work with, and what you're suggesting is that people cooperating all the time, they're sort of trying to help out, do the right thing for their, for their neighbor, or the other people in the network, isn't necessarily an, the optimal strategy for effective uh, networks. Right, for the whole network, because what happens if someone does one good thing, the next person is going to build on that, and that's two good things, and then there are going to be three good things. And eventually, there's going to be a wider and wider spread of the number of good things that, that they're doing. In an article we published a few years ago, uh, which modeled the interaction between two people, if one person is always trying to do the same as the other and the other person is trying to do the opposite, you can see that creates sort of a push-pull, and both of them wind up kind of being neutral. Mm. They oscillate up and down because they're out of phase for a while, but mm. they wind up being neutral. So sometimes having people doing the opposite things mixed with people who are doing the same things makes the overall situation uh, better. Hmm. I mean, it, it's interesting in terms of the way like the body works or a lot of other systems, there's both negative and positive control of something. Sure. And, you know, so... So it does make me think of John Gottman's research. So I know you've done research with John Gottman. John Gottman is a... Uh, a marital therapist and a mathematician, and they do work with couples, right? Looking at the dynamics of divorce, the di dynamics of more stable, <laughs> happy marriages. Uh, and he's found interesting things in his research. He's done decades of research now on marriages. One of the things he's found is that, you know, conflict is necessary. 
right, sort of negativity and, and, and as you say, sort of doing the opposite, you know, having people clash in a, in a relationship is necessary, that it, it requires some kind of, you know, baseline of cooperation and trust and positivity in order for the conflict not to just completely overwhelm the system and have people leave each other. Um, but without it, it seems like people don't learn, they don't grow, they don't, they're not challenged. So that's, intuitively that makes sense, but you know, oftentimes people go into therapy because they're in conflict, right? And he's sort of suggesting, well, you know, it's, it's not something to get rid of, it's, it's actually a critical component of healthy relationships, but it only works under certain conditions. So d does your work yet in small networks, which would you know, sort of take that out of two people and put it into larger groups, does it have similar kind of flavor? Yeah, I would I would say yes. We we've also been working with John Gottman to do to extend his model of married couples to therapists and clients interacting in psychotherapy, and in the way what you're saying comes in into um, into effect there is that sometimes you really want the therapist to push on the client. Right. But a really skilled therapist knows when to pull back. Hmm. And that's the same thing in an argument in a, in a couple. It's good, as you said, for people to challenge each other, but you have to know when to pull back and when to just sort of, sort of let go. Hmm. So, so those things, and both of them, both pushing and letting go and, and, and opening up new vistas by being challenging but knowing when to be supportive, mm. you know, those two things are really important in a relationship between two people. Mm -hmm. And we're just beginning to understand in terms of the network models, you know, how those same things play out when there's a much larger group of people than just two. So um, has the research with therapist um, clients um, taught us anything yet about like you know what are the guidelines for a therapist when do you push when do you back off is that just something you know intuitively yeah it's too preliminary for us to do that we're just analyzing now some data from about a dozen different sessions uh, one of the things we have seen is that if the session ends with the therapist feeling negative uh, that's very bad, and usually mm. the client doesn't come back. <laughs> right. uh, so, and and that's an important outcome measure. So, only about half the time do people ever come back for a second therapy session. Mm. So, coming back for a second time is is a a, a big deal. Sure. We're we're just at the point of of getting enough data to beginning to see some trends in the data. So, we don't have that yet. We're mm -hmm. still living by our intuition in what past people have published in the literature on, on the therape ther therapeutic relationship. So what's interesting, again, about that is that, you know, so therapy founded by Freud, some would suggest, right? And part of what Freud's approach was, his theory and his style or approach was to step back, right? To really let the client free associate, let them work on their own, and then occasionally introduce interventions or questions. But really, it was a more... I don't know, actively passive model in some ways. And then the cognitive behavioral people or the rationalists were, were, are much more behavioralist or much more, you know, all right, this is, what, this is what you're doing right, this is what you're doing wrong, change it. <laughs> you know? So they're much more kind of pushing people. And what you're saying is some combination of both makes sense. Right, right. I've been to Freud's house in uh, Vienna twice, actually. It's sort of, it's a one-floor walk-off that's yeah. sort of uh, interesting. Yeah. But his couch isn't there, I think. His couch escaped uh, right before the Nazis to uh, London. It's in, I think it's in the London, uh, the, uh, the British Museum, right? The Royal Museum, I think, yeah. Uh, good. So, so um, let's just go back for a second to peace. So now we have started working together on uh, 
a new project, which is trying to map the fundamental dimensions of, of sustainable peace. Right? And this is a kind of a grandiose project that uh, Larry and I and Kyung Mazaro and Josh Fisher and Beth, Yoshi Beth Yoshida Fisher and others have been working on. Uh, and that entails trying to understand peace. Part of what we have found in our work over years is that there's a fair amount of intention and energy put into studying, you know, destructive things, conflict, violence, aggression, pathology, that humans tend to study at least first those things we fear and are trying to contain and control and avoid. Um, and so, and the idea has been that peace will, you know, if we understand that side of the equation well enough, peace will emerge. And part of what some, some scholars, for example, Doug Fry, who's an anthropologist, have, have found is that, that in fact, if you study peaceful societies, if you study groups of people who are either internally peaceful or regionally peaceful, that there's a lot to learn and that in fact, there are certain what we'd call kind of parameters that, that are shared across different societies like that. So part of what Larry and I and um, a small group of people are trying to do now is use mathematics and complexity science to map sustainable peace. Uh, and that will sort of be about bringing in insights and ideas from various different disciplines um, and sort of talk about, well, what are, from your disciplinary perspective, what, do, what does the science say about the most important components um, in economics, in political science, in psychology, in mathematics, that can inform something called sustainable peace. So, Larry, from your perspective, and I'm throwing you a question, <laughs> throwing you a curve here, but from your perspective as a physicist who works and you know, you work across disciplines you have for many years, but, you know, your main discipline is probably applied mathematics or physics. Um, are there particular conditions or ideas that you see physics really suggesting are fundamental properties of something called peace? I, w I would say, I mean, maybe you should really explain more what the word mapping means. Sure. So, so th the word mapping here means that you identify aspects that are important and you see how each one influences the other positively, negatively, you draw a nice picture so you could see where things are more central and where they're more important. I would say, I don't think I can answer the question you asked, but I'll sure. answer sort of speculate. A, a perhaps. A, well, I'll ask a, a side question, which, <laughs> right. which, which is, I think, what the mathematics can tell you is that once you have the mapping diagram mm -hmm. of of what concept or effect influences another, maybe you could quantify that or write down the equations for that. And it's possible the equations may tell you the behavior is different or more extreme or less extreme than maybe the way you've drawn the map. Mm. So I would say the mathematics doesn't tell you something directly about about uh, conflict or what to look for, but, but maybe it would help you analyze the map of all these different factors that are put together, mm. and it might help give you insight as to which are the most important or what sort of behavior you might might expect. I mean, what we see in a lot of mathematical systems are things like cycles. Things go up and down in time, or they go way off or something. So I think the mathematics would help help you ask questions that then you might want to look for in the data. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Want to ask you just about uh, mathematics and the work we've done and your life. So uh, 
you know, you, you think a lot about mathematics and you bring a lot of interesting insights from mathematics to the conversations that we have uh, with theorists and practitioners and peace and conflict. Um, have some of these ideas, either the, the ideas from mathematics or from the, our work in, in conflict and peace, had an impact on you and you, how you work or your personal life? Yeah, that's a good, uh, a good question. Um, I, I would say probably the biggest impact is that, you know, when you make a mathematical model, you restrict what you're looking at to be focused. Mm. I would say I think my life would be better if I'm a little bit more unfocused <laughs> sometime and have a broader range and maybe can see more things that, that pop into view. Mm. And I think that's also something that would improve some of the mathematical models mm. uh, that we're, we're, we're doing also. So I think... I think it, it teaches you not to be tunnel division sometimes, hmm. that, that we like the models and we're learning something, but it also teaches you the danger of doing too much mathematics and being too tightly focused. Right, to not, to not confuse the models with reality, right, yeah. Well, so it's interesting because one of the kind of main takeaways that, that the, the peace world, the peace and conflict studies world has taken from mathematics is the importance of complexity, the importance of understanding things in context and over time, right? So as opposed to breaking things apart and just studying how, you know, if you increase in cooperative attitudes of young, pe young people, they'll be more constructive in relation to each other. Well, that may be true, but you have to kind of look at everything else. You have to look at drug addictions and poverty and, you know, the, the constellation of other factors that are affecting them, right? So what's interesting is that mathematics has taught us to ourselves as psychologists or you know, peace psychologists or what, whatever our discipline is, the study of peace, to back up and to try to understand the context you know, before kind of going in and doing a more microanalysis, before model building. So really in some ways what you're learning is what we've learned from mathematics. So that's fine. <laughs> right, so it's a two-way street. All right. Very good. All right. Well, um, anything else uh, the, of your current work that you'd like to share that uh, would, would be of relevance to the, uh, the work that we've been doing and discussing? Um, not, not in detail. We, we work on a number of other projects using game theory to analyze some situations. We're working to see uh, effects in social media yeah. uh, and a number of, uh, number of other things. I know. What's, what's been fascinating about Larry's work for years is that he will oftentimes use either similar equations or similar approaches to the study of something, but then apply it to, you know, cellular change or epidemiology or to protein change, um, and then all the way up to kind of macro level political you know, peace and conflict dynamics. So you can use sort of similar classes of models, I guess. Is that R how you describe yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So we have this two-person model, which we've used both for psychotherapy and for conflict and for genes uh, in DNA regulating other genes. And the basic models, the equation is very simple. It says whatever ha is happening now depends on what happened a little while ago plus what would happen if there was no other person or gene, plus the influence from one gene or person on the other. And we have different influence functions for those models, but they start with uh, the rest of the equation being the same and uh, the fact that a gene will influence another gene differently than one person will influence another person mm -hmm. changes the dynamics and how the, the model plays out. 
And do you use a similar kind of model in the um, small world network? So as you go from two people to, you know, 100 people or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Each person is behaving similarly to how they behave uh, uh, with the two-person pe- model. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we're looking at what happens when there are uh, a lot of people together. We've also done other th- things, too, like what happens if there's a time delay yeah. in how people interact with each other? In a lot of systems, that produces oscillations and other effects. Hmm. So if, if the signals, people don't get immediate feedback and there's a delay, then they do something and the data is old and now they've done the wrong thing. Hmm. And, and that causes interesting dynamics in the system. So we also study you know, um, effects like that. So that seems to have implications for social networks and social technology yeah. and the delays that are sometimes inherently built in those. Yeah, very interesting. Well, Larry, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Larry, as I said, has been a member of our team for years, and um, hopefully will continue to do so and brings unique insights and uh, expertise to our team. But thank you for coming today and speaking with us, and uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Good, and it's uh, been a real pleasure to speak with you and come here today. Thank you. Great, my pleasure.